Uh, well, hey guys, my, my name is Steve Wall and I am the campus pastor at our Noblesville campus. Thanks so much for joining us both here in the room and online. And as Jerry said in that video, it is summer. Now I know the calendar may not say summer until June 21st, but it is summer in our hearts, right? School is out. The weather's getting warmer. My roses are in bloom. Uh, it's definitely summer in our hearts. And summer means lots of things. It can mean parties in the park. Uh, it means vacation. It means swimming pools. It means uh, all kinds of things. But for some of you, summer is a time of transition, especially if you have recently graduated from high school or college. Do we have any recent graduates in the room? No, they're all out partying. Oh, we got one. Good. Good. Uh, I just want to say, if you've graduated uh, recently, we're going, to, we're going to celebrate you a little bit today. We want to pray for you. Maybe you're entering the workforce for the first time. <clears throat> Maybe you're getting ready to go off to college in the fall, or you're going to enter the military. Maybe you have no idea what you're doing, and it's stressing you out. And like, leave me alone already, Dad, right? I'm going to get it figured out. But whatever your plans may be or may not be, we are proud of our graduates here at Genesis Church. And so across both of our campuses and online, we're celebrating you today. Uh, um, and we want to just take a moment and pray for you. As a church, I want you to know that our graduates this year, uh, a lot of them have been a part of this church for a long time. They've grown up in Gen Kids. They've uh, been taking trips and been in small groups in GSM. And many of you have helped them get to where they are today. You've served alongside uh, other workers in Gen Kids and helped them grow up and know the Lord. And uh, maybe you've counseled with them or you've served with them in GSM. And so I want to say thank you to you if you're one of those people that has helped. But I, I just want to take a moment here. And I was uh, praying this week and asking the Lord what I needed to share with our graduates. And uh, he gave me this verse, I think uh, it's from Psalm 20. And it says this, may he give you the desire of your heart and make all of your plans succeed. So if you're graduating this year, uh, that is my prayer for you, that the Lord would give you the desire of your heart, make all your plans succeed. I just want to take a moment right here in the service. Let's pray together. Let's pray for all of our graduates across both campuses uh, today. Lord, I am so thankful uh, that you give us these transitional moments where we uh, go from one stage of our life to the next, one phase to the next, and uh, how you work in those moments. You work in those transitions. You worked with the Israelites in the wilderness, uh, how you worked with Jesus when he was tempted in the desert. Lord, we're in these moments uh, where we go from one thing to the next, and it can be scary. It can be frightening. It can also be exciting. And so, Lord, I just pray for excitement for all of our graduates, both here in the room and online, uh, Lord, that you would help them to see what the next step is, that you would give them the desire of their heart, um, and that your plans would prevail, Lord. We're thankful to you. We're thankful for your love. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, thank you guys so much for indulging us on that moment. It is, it's move up Sunday here at Genesis. And one of the things that means is that some of the kids are going to their new classroom. But uh, man, for our graduates, we just wanted to take that moment and say, we love you. We appreciate you. And we're thankful for you. Well, we're kicking off a new series this week called Summer of Love. It is the Summer of Love at Genesis. And where I started thinking about where I should start today, I started thinking about the word love and how weird it is uh, that we have this one word in the English language that represents so many different things, right? Like I, I love uh, the Indianapolis Colts, I love potato chips, and I love my wife. And we use the same word for all of those things. And I wondered if we all would even have the same idea of what love really means. And so to figure out what people say about love, I did what any self-respecting 21st century person would do. I Googled it. And if you Google love, uh, you get a lot of different returns. In fact, I Googled the phrase love is, and here are some results that I got. Love is patient. Love is kind. 
Love is a many splendored thing. Love is never having to say you're sorry. And my favorite, uh, love is blind, seasons one and two. <laughs> and so, you know, the world has a whole lot to say about love, but much of the advice we get about love is conflicting, confusing, and sometimes, in a lot of cases, not even really helpful at all. But the good news is the Bible also has a lot to say about love, about God's love for us, uh, has a lot to say about our love for one another, how we're supposed to love each other, how we are supposed to love our spouse, our husband or our wife. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about how we are to love our kids if we're parents or how we are to love our parents if we're kids. Uh, the Bible has a lot to say about how to love our neighbors well and about how we express our love for God. And because it's the word of God, you can know that it's trustworthy and true. And so this summer in this series called Summer of Love, we're gonna be taking eight weeks to really talk about Love. We're going to see how these biblical principles can make us into better lovers, better disciples, and better people. And so today I want to share with you one of my favorite verses about God's love for us. And so if you've got your Bibles with you, I want to encourage you to open them to Romans chapter 8. Uh, Romans chapter 8 is in the New Testament. But before I share, I want to tell you this story. Uh, many of you know I have two kids. My wife, Benita, and I have been married for Actually, we're going to celebrate 30 years in a couple of months, 30 years of marriage. And um, so uh, we have two girls. Gracie is 21, or 20, sorry. Gracie is 20. Um, I don't know why I'm looking at my notes. The answer's not there. I assumed that I would remember how old my kids are when I got up here to talk. Uh, shows what I know, right? Uh, Gracie is 20 and Audrey is 18. But when they were little, when they were really little, we used to play this game. And if you're a parent, you probably played a game or said something similar to this. We would play this game called, you know, guess how much I love you. Uh, and uh, actually, the way it went in our house is I would, I, would, I would say this phrase. I would say, is there anything you can do to make daddy not love you? And they would always say, no. You know, and it was so cute when they're really little, right? And so they're saying, no. And then, uh, but then they'd try to come up with scenarios that they could carry out that would make dad not love them, right? So they'd say like, but what if I spilled my drink at dinner? I'd say, no, I might make you clean it up, but I'd still love you. Um, but what if I failed a class at school? I'd say, no, I might make you work harder, but I'd still love you. And then, you know, they'd start coming up with these more and more aggressive scenarios until it got to like, what if I pushed Audrey down the stairs, you know, or something like that, <laughs> trying to come up with a scenario that would make me not love them. And the truth is there was nothing they could do to make me take my love away from them. And they still can't. And that, more, that story reminds me of the verse I want to share today. It's a pair of verses, actually, from the New Testament book of Romans. Now, Romans, if you don't know, is actually a letter. It's written by a man named Paul. We know him as the Apostle Paul. Now, if you don't know Paul's story, he was a Jew in the ruling class just a few years after Jesus uh, died and was raised from the dead. And uh, he was a big persecutor or uh, chaser of early Christians. In fact, he, the Bible tells us that he was there when Stephen was stoned to death. He was giving his approval to that. And then Paul became one of the biggest persecutors of Christians in the first century uh, to the point that one day he was on his way to Damascus to get permission to put some Christians in jail. And he was met on the road face to face by Jesus. Now, the problem with this is that Jesus was dead. <laughs> Jesus had died, had been raised from the dead. He had descended into heaven, but he comes down and meets Paul face to face. And Paul all of a sudden turns his life around. 
Like his, his priorities change, and instead of becoming a persecutor of Christians, he becomes one of them. In fact, uh, one of the most aggressive and assertive ones. And, and uh, Paul goes on to become one of the best evangelists in the first century, one of the best church planners of all time. He helps plant churches, and he teaches and encourages, and he does it largely through a series of letters. And many of those are captured for us in the New Testament today. Romans is one of those letters. It's written by Paul to the church in Rome. And Rome was a, uh, an unusual church for the first century because it was made up largely of Gentile believers or non-Jewish believers. Many of the churches at that time were a mix of Jews and Gentiles, but Rome was uh, largely non-Jewish believers. And this part of the letter, what we now know as Romans chapter 8, I think is one of the most encouraging and comforting pieces of scripture in the whole Bible. And so take a look at what Paul writes to those who are in Christ, in the church, in Rome. Romans 8, 38 and 39 is the passage I want to focus on today. He says this, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels nor demons, nor the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Now, I got to tell you, when I first read this passage as a new believer, it blew me away that God's love would be like that, that, that there was nothing in all of creation that would separate me from God's love because I, I know me, right? I, I know how I am. I know what I do. I know the things I think about. I know that I'm not always easy to love, and I don't always feel worthy of love. But I think that's exactly the point of that passage, that you are I, that we are not worthy of that love. There's, there's nothing I could do to earn a love like that, that the unconditional love of God, you know, that word unconditional love means love without conditions. Right? The unconditional love of God is so strong and so powerful, so inseparable, if I can use that word in that way, not because of how great I am, but because of how great God is. It's true with me and it's true with you. You are unconditionally loved by God, but not because you're so awesome, although you are awesome. I think you're awesome, but because God is so awesome you, that you can never earn his love, but it's given to you anyway. In fact, if you don't take away anything else from this morning, here's what I want you to know. There is nothing you can do to make God love you more. And there's nothing you can do to make God love you less. In fact, it's not just this verse or this couplet of verses that speaks to this. All of Romans 8 is basically uh, an essay on God's love for us, on the, the benefits of being in Christ. Uh, this chapter, maybe more than any other in the Bible, speaks to the benefits of being a Christian, being a follower of Jesus, of being a part of the family of God and being subject to his love. Now, I got to tell you that we've done weeks-long um, series on the chapter Romans 8, and so we won't be able to cover everything that Romans 8 has to say this morning. But what I want to do is walk through it pretty quickly and maybe the highlights, hit the highlights of what a relationship with Christ can do for us. So let's start with Romans 8.1. He says, therefore, Paul writes, there is, no condemn there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as you read this verse, you notice the very first word is the word therefore. And I know it's cheesy and I know it's corny, but I love Pastor Rick Warren always says that when you see the word therefore, you need to look and see what it's 
therefore, right? And so if you look backwards in this, you'll find out what this therefore is therefore. If you go back to chapter seven, you'll notice that Paul is ranting about his own personal sin. He uses this phrase and it's one that I can relate to. I wanted to make it my life verse, but I figured it was a little too painful. He says, I don't understand what I do. What I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. Anybody in the room can relate with that? Don't raise your hand. That's what it means to live in the flesh. Like Paul gives us this 10 second definition. What I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And he goes on to say, what a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from death? Paul, who when he was confronted with a living Jesus on the road to Damascus, completely changed the course of his life. Paul, one of the greatest evangelists in the history of mankind. Paul, who would go on to spend years in a Roman prison because of his faith. Paul says, I am a wretched man. If he's a wretched man, how much more wretched am I? If Paul is deserving of death, how much more do I deserve death? Paul says, who will rescue me from this death? But then he answers his own question in Romans 7.25. He says, thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that is the basis. That's the foundation for all of Romans chapter eight. So when he says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, that's what he's talking about. Thanks be to God who rescued me through Jesus Christ. Because of that, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Michael Van Lanningham, who's a Bible commentator at Moody Seminary, says that condemnation includes both the idea of rendering a verdict of guilt and the punishment that follows. So Paul is saying, you are uh, declared in Christ not guilty of your sin and you're spared from the eternal punishment that you deserve because of that. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And as you read on, you see what Paul's gonna talk about is that this idea of no condemnation especially refers to our freedom from the crippling power of sin in our lives. Just look at some of the phrases. I'll go through these real quickly that Paul uses as he talks about this. In Romans 8, 3, he says, for what the law was powerless to do because it was weakened by our flesh, God did by sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh to be a sin offering. God made this perfect man, Jesus, into uh, the image of sin so that he could take on the punishment we deserve. He goes on verse five. He says, those who live according to the flesh have their minds set on what the flesh desires, but those who live in accordance with the spirit have their mind set on what the spirit desires. The mind governed by the flesh is death, but the mind governed by the spirit is life and peace. There's so much here and we don't have time to talk about all of it. I want to encourage you, in fact, to read Romans eight for yourself this week. You know, we've been uh, this year, most of the year, we've been doing this series called Grow, and we've had a reading plan for you from the book of John, but we don't have a reading plan right now. And so if you want something to read, go this week and read Romans 8 and just take a look at all these places that Paul talks about, these benefits of being in Christ. He, he's, what he's trying to do here is he's drawing a real contrast between those who are living by the Spirit and those who are living in the flesh. And to understand what he's saying, uh, you need to understand that every believer has living in us God's Holy Spirit, that he's there to help us and to guide us and to comfort us and to, to advocate for us. But Paul says some of us live by the Spirit or follow the Spirit's leadings, and some still live by the flesh. And that the Spirit is given to us by God out of his love, and he is a gift. The Holy Spirit is a gift to us, a gift given by God out of his grace and mercy. And then Paul goes on, verse 9, he says, You, however, 
He's talking to believers. He's talking to people in the church. So you could just imagine he's talking to you directly. You, however, are not in the realm of the flesh, but are in the realm of the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God lives in you. And if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, they do not belong to Christ. But if Christ is in you, even though your body is subject to death because of sin, the spirit gives life because of righteousness. And if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead is living in you, he who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies because of his spirit who lives in you. And it's because of that Holy Spirit living inside of us because of God's grace in that gift that there is now no condemnation for those who are living in Christ. In fact, if you want to take notes today, I'm going to give you three really simple points that you can remember. These benefits, uh, these signs of God's inseparable love for us. And the first one is this, that God's love for us has no condemnation. We see it right there in verse one. There's no condemnation. I told you what that means right, we've gone, as we've gone through some of these verses, but let me tell you what it doesn't mean. Because I want to warn you that no condemnation doesn't mean that we won't be tested no condemnation doesn't mean that we won't face difficult times. It doesn't mean that we won't face trials or tricky decisions. In fact, it's quite the opposite. Paul is going to go on to warn his readers that as followers of Jesus, we will face trying situations. We, we, we do live in a broken world. He talks about the groans, that the world is still groaning. He's talking about all the things that we're subject to because we live in this broken world, the, the whims of nature and the worldly consequences of sin. You know that even though we're spared from condemnation for our sin, there are still worldly consequences for our sin. You know that, right? And there are worldly consequences for our sin. There are also worldly consequences that we have to face for the sin of people around us. And that doesn't seem fair sometimes, and that hurts sometimes. But we all know we've all been in a situation where a friend of ours committed a sin and it affected us, right? We're not spared from that just because we're followers. But he's going to remind us to take the long view. Right, to live with eternity in mind. In verse 18, he says this, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. And if you are presently suffering and you read that verse, it might seem like Paul is kind of shrugging off your concerns. It might seem like, well, hey, my sufferings are actually pretty big right now. But this verse, I found it to be a great comfort to me in some difficult times in my life, and maybe you will too. He's effectively saying, I know you think times are bad, but because you live by the Spirit, you have the promise of heaven down the road. You've got this promise of better times to come, and someday you'll look back on this and laugh, and you think, there is no way. When I think about my current situation, that I could think I'm going to look back and laugh. But for those who aren't in Christ, for those who live by the flesh, they don't have that promise. They don't have the same promise that we have. Instead, they lack eternal life, that they will suffer both now and in the future. But for you, if you're a Christian, Paul says, you can rejoice that better days are coming. Now, he's not making light of your current situation. Paul doesn't mean that what you're facing doesn't matter, that the divorce doesn't matter, or that the pain isn't real, or that the relationship problem is just a blip. And if you're in a difficult time now, Paul is not writing. He's not saying that God doesn't care or he's not listening to your prayers. In fact, it's the contrary. He's gonna go on to tell us that the Holy Spirit, this Holy Spirit that lives inside of us is advocating for us. Look at this in verse 26. He says, in the same way, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for. How many of you have ever been in a difficult situation and you didn't even know what to pray for? 
says, we do not know what to pray for, but the spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groans. I want you to know if you're in a difficult season right now, that God's Holy Spirit, who's living inside of you, joins you in your prayers. Just keep praying. Go to God, take it to God. His love for you never fails. His Holy Spirit is interceding, the Bible says, with wordless groans. That's what it means to have an advocate. And then Paul's gonna go on to tell us that God can actually use the difficult times we're facing right now for our good. Verse 28, one of my favorite verses in all of scripture. He says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. God can use all things, is what that says. God can use all things, good things, neutral things, bad things. He can use all things for the good of those who love him. In fact, a lot of times when we think about this, we think about that our difficult times can be used for God's glory. And that can be helpful for us to think about, but it can also be a little bit off-putting if you're thinking, well, that's great for God, but not so great for me. But what Paul is saying is that it can be used for your good, for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purposes. And, and look how certain Paul is. He doesn't, he doesn't write, I think this is all going to work out. <laughs> he doesn't say, in my opinion, in my experience, he says, and we know we know, we are certain, there is a sureness that it's going to work out for the good of those who love him. That in all things, God works for the good of those who love him and who have been called according to his purpose. Then Paul's going to go on to give us another reason why there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He reminds us that we are part of God's family, that we have been adopted as sons and daughters. We, have, we who have chosen Christ are given all the rights of full-born children of God, that we are brothers and sisters in Christ with one another. And because of all those things, Paul writes in, uh, all the way through verse 28, he says, there is no condemnation, all the way through verse 30, actually, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So God's love for us has no condemnation. The second thing I wanna show you in this passage is it has no accusation. Romans 8.31, he goes on. He says, what then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? If God is for us, who can be against us? And now this is not meant to be a conditional statement. Uh, he's not saying, uh, you know, if you can get behind the idea that God is for you, then that means nobody can be against you. That's not what he's saying. Instead, Paul is saying, look at what God has done. Look at everything he's done for you since he did all of these things that we just talked about for you, including not sparing his own son. That's the trade God made for you, by the way, that he looked at you and thought you were worthy of saving. And so he sent his one and only son, his firstborn, his heir to the cross to die on your behalf, to pay the price that you deserved because he thought you were worthy of being saved. He says, look what God has done since he's done all these things for you. Not only his son, his firstborn, but since that is true, Paul reminds us, he goes, if God is for us, who can be against us? And then he goes on, he says, who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies it. Think about it this way. Since we have this advocate in the Holy Spirit who's interceding on our behalf, we don't need to fear any accuser. There is an accuser, by the way, 
The Bible talks about it. I'm talking about Satan here. Your, your enemy, your mortal enemy, if you're in Christ, uh, because he's the one Revelation 12 describes as the accuser of the brethren, that he would be the kind of person that every time that you sin, he would be there whispering in your ear every time you mess up, every time you fall short, every time you screw up. He's there whispering in your ear. See, I told you you're not good enough. I told you you wouldn't make it. I told you you're not holy enough. I, I told you you have no standing with God. I told you you shouldn't be talking to your friend about Jesus because he hasn't done anything for you. Look at you. You're still sinning. You're still messing up. That's the accuser, right? That's the one who does that. He's, he, he's telling you even that, that even Jesus can't save you. But I got to tell you, friends, you, you are not the one person in human history that Jesus couldn't save. <laughs> you may be bad, but you ain't that bad. All right. There is no accusation in God's love. And finally, here's the third thing I want you to see today. In God's love, there's no condemnation. There's no accusation. And finally, what we're going to focus on, there is no separation. Romans 8.35 says, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sore? Those are all bad things. Hopefully you'll notice as we go on through these last few verses of chapter eight, that this is a rhetorical question by Paul. He, he's not asking you to answer these things. Like who, who is it? Who's going who's gonna to separate you? One, which one of these things is it going to be? He's going to go on with a whole list of things that it could be uh, that could separate us from other people's love. <laughs> In fact, no matter how much you love your kids or your parents or your spouse or your friends or your dog, you know, you, your love is imperfect. Your love is conditional because you are human and you are imperfect. I am human and I am imperfect. And my love, as much as I like to think that my love is unconditional, like my love is conditional. There are things that you can do to make me lose my love for you. I, how many of you have ever gone through a breakup? Raise your hand. I mean, it's, it's, it's okay. It's most of us, right? A, pain, a really painful. Anybody gone through a really painful one? Like, uh, I know that's a little harder. Uh, I remember one time, a uh, long time ago, my, my, my wife and I have been married for 30 years, a long time ago, but um, I had a girlfriend that broke up with me once that uh, we had been dating just for a few months, and I started talking about future and what that might look like, and she thought I was getting a little too clingy, and so she told me, she said, Steve, you're too clingy. I can't do this anymore, and it was, don't laugh, that was hard. <laughs> I can laugh now. Maybe yours look different, but that kind of thing has happened to me a lot. I've had people tell me a lot that I'm too something. Have you ever had anybody tell you you're too something? Like I had a boss that once told me I was too goofy. I had a boss, another boss that told me I was too invested in my family and not invested enough in my work. My, my dad once told me I was too quick-witted for my own good. And what he meant was my smart mouth was going to get me in trouble someday. <laughs> Maybe you've been called too smart or too dumb or too handsome or too pretty or too funny or too serious or too involved or too standoffish or too, too tall, too short, too chubby, too skinny, too blonde, too hairy, too awkward, too ugly, too clumsy. Hey, here's the point. You will always be too something for someone, but you're perfect for God. His love for you is complete. It lacks nothing. It is unbreakable. In fact, take a look at the list that Paul's going to go on to use again in these last couple of verses. In, uh, verse 38, he says, for I am convinced that neither death nor life. Life can separate us 
from each other's love sometimes, right? Neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, nor the present, nor the future, nor any powers, nor any height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Paul ends with this phrase, he says, nor anything else in all of creation, as if to say, just in case I've left something out. Hey, if you think there's something that can separate you from the love of God, let me just clear that up for you. Neither Nothing else in any of all of creation. In fact, what is in all of creation? What did God create? Everything, right? He says that nothing that has ever been created can separate you from the love of God just in case you doubt, just in case you wonder, just in case you think maybe there's something else on the list that should have been included. He says nothing, 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 nothing in all of creation. There is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. I love again how Michael Van Landingham, the Moody scholar says it. I love this quote so much. I want to put it up on the screen. He said, it is inconceivable that a true believer who at times might not be able to keep his own shoe tied or balance his checkbook could undo the eternal purposes of God that include his foreknowledge and their glorification. Then he says this, I love this. He says, the believer is not nearly that powerful nor the spirit and the savior so incompetent. And remember, it's not because of your greatness or my greatness that this is true. It's because of God's greatness. There is nothing you can do to make him love you anymore. And there's nothing you can do to make him love you less. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I am so thankful for that truth. That even when I mess up, even when I'm not who you've fully called me to be, even when I do the things that you'd prefer me not to do, Lord, when, when I'm in that situation where I think, what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. That you look down at me and you have grace and you have mercy for that, that your love never fails. That your love is a perfect love, that your love is an unconditional love. Lord, that it's so different from everything that we experience here on earth. I am thankful for that today. And God, it can be real easy to come in here in a place like this on Sunday morning to, to be watching a service like this and think, oh, I'm so glad to hear that. Now I'm gonna get on with my life and completely forget about it. Lord, I just pray that you would plant that seed in our heart, that we would remember that your love is a perfect love that never fails, that your love is inseparable, that we cannot be separated from your love by anything in all of creation, that death, nor life, nor height, nor depth, nor angels, nor demons, nor anything else in all of creation can separate us from your love because you are that great and your love is that strong and that powerful. We thank you for that, Lord. We praise you for that now in Jesus' name, amen.